Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello, I'm your host, Ken Gagney, and this week on the Polygamer Podcast, I am speaking with Mr. Matthew Kahn of Midboss Games, the studio responsible for the recent point-and-click adventure game, Read-only memories available for PC, Mac, and Linux from Steam, GOG, and Itch.io. Find out more at readonlymemory.es. The game features a diverse cast of characters and is developed by a studio with its own diverse cast of characters. Usually when I'm talking to game developers, it's for my other podcast, IndieCider, where I interview indie game developers and feature those games on my YouTube channel. That actually was the original intent for this interview with Matt. I did not expect to have a repeat guest on Polygamer. We were talking about his game for IndieCider. But after we've been talking for about 10 to 15 minutes, I realized that the length and scope and nature of the discussion we were having was really a better fit for Polygamer. So when we ended the recording, I asked him, Hey Matt, I hate to pull a bait and switch on you, but could I move this interview from IndieCider like we previously discussed to Polygamer, which you've been on before? And he said, absolutely. However, that means that the opening of the interview might sound a little out of place because it sounds like I'm interviewing him for a different podcast, which I was. However, this is not Matt's first time on IndieCider. In fact, way back in December of 2014, I had him, Emma Clarkson, and Sabriel Mastin on for an end-of-year roundtable where we discussed our favorite indie games of the year. I don't think Matt would be eligible to participate in that roundtable this year because one of his games is a contender now. That's not his only connection to these podcasts, though. Those of you who have been listening to the Polygamer podcast since day one will remember the name Matt Kahn because he was the very first guest on this show. Way back in July of 2014, we chatted for an hour about GamerX, this year known as GX3, the video game convention held in the San Francisco area for the LGBT community and its allies. I'll be attending my first GX this December when I moderate a panel called Unheard Voices, representing diverse podcasters, including Anna Tarkov of Unconsolable, Tanya DePass of Fresh Out of Tokens, Sean Alexander Allen of A New Challenger, another alumnus of this show, and John James of Minus World, a podcast that I've appeared on. If you want to hear more about GamerX, you can listen to Polygamer episode number one, or the Less Than or Equal podcast number 58, which aired on September 15, 2015, far more recently, where my friend Aline Sims interviewed Matt Kahn, mostly about GamerX, but also about the documentary Gaming in Color, the director of which, Philip Jones, we interviewed earlier this spring on the Polygamer podcast, as well as Read Only Memories. And speaking of Less Than or Equal, that show also recently featured another familiar voice to the Polygamer podcast. That melodious voice that you hear at the beginning and end of every single episode of both Polygamer and IndieCider is my dear friend Annie Linson. Annie sings in a band called the Misbehavin' Maidens, which is a group that promotes sex positivity through music and general geekery. They recently released their first album via a Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign that I backed, and they went on the Less Center Equal podcast on episode number 62, October 13, 2015, to talk all about their band, their album, sex positivity, lyrics, renfests, and much more. So if you want to hear more of Annie's voice beyond just the few first and last seconds of this podcast, I recommend you check out Less Than or Equal number 62. So if you can keep all those shows straight, let's move ahead with this one, Polygamer number 32, episode with Mr. Matt Kahn of Midboss Games discussing the game Read Only Memories. If you like this show, you can find more at polygamer.net. You can also leave a review on iTunes or follow me on Twitter at GameBits. Matt Kahn is on Twitter as Matt Kahn. Thanks for listening.
Today, I'm very fortunate to be speaking with my old friend, Matt Kahn, CEO of MidBoss and producer of Read-Only Memories. Hi, Matt. Hey, Ken. How you doing? Good. Now, Matt, you are an alumnus of this show, having appeared on the end-of-year roundtable back in 2014, and also you were the very first guest on my other podcast, Polygamer, and I also received a free copy of Read-Only Memories as a result of having backed all three Gamer X's, or GX's, on Kickstarter. So ethics just go out the window for this podcast. Wow. Well, thank you, Ken. I had no—I didn't even know that you had backed all the Gamer X Kickstarters. Uh, but yeah, thank you for for supporting our whole vision and what we're doing, and having me on the show. Like, uh, you're you're doing really important work, and I'm really excited by the fact that I get to join you on, on all these great talks. Oh, thank you, and I'm very excited to finally meet you when I attend GX3 in San Jose this December. Yeah. Woo. All right, so you have been a very busy person going to Geek Girl Con and going to QG Con and. Gosh, giving so many talks and interviews about read-only memories, and now you're giving another interview on my show. This is just the last stretch of a very long development period for read-only memories. How long has ROM been in development? Probably started on it around the end of October, early November 2013. So just coming up on two years now, and uh, you know, it's not really done. Done. Like we're going to be working on you know console ports and all this stuff over the next couple months. So. Probably by the, the time we're finally done with everything involving, you know, Read-Only Memories number one, it'll probably be uh, about two and a half years. It's currently out for Mac, PC, and Linux via Steam. What other systems are we going to be seeing it on? I assume probably you mentioned consoles, but also handhelds and mobile? Yeah, yeah. You know, as, as you may have heard, if you've been following the Read-Only Memories story, we were originally a part of the OUYA Free the Games Fund thing that ended up falling apart, but then Razer picked it up, and, and there was weirdness, but... Uh, on November 2nd, or within that week, we're going to be releasing on Ouya and the Razor Forge um, as part of that deal. So if you have a Razor Forge or Ouya or select Android TV devices, our game will be available on all of those on November 2nd. Um, and then you know, we have GamerX in December, so probably within December, late December, early next year, we'll, we'll start rolling out or announcing uh, you know, for iOS, Android, PlayStation 4, PS Vita, Xbox One. We've also been in chats with other people, uh, including like Nintendo. But you know, right now that like that's a pretty big swath of things to work on for our team. So those are probably going to be the first the first iterations uh, would be those those consoles and devices. I imagine Nintendo would not seem the most likely of target audience for this game. I know that historically they've been a little bit more conservative, especially regarding non traditional relationships. Right, yeah, and, and that's why I was very much just like, I was very shocked when Nintendo approached us. And Nintendo seems, out of all the different companies, seems to actually be the one who really gets, or, or the people that we're talking to, really get kind of what read Memories is about and why it's important, um, which is really cool, you know, working with people who, who get it. But at the same time, I, I worry about what kind of support we're going to get from the higher-up level of Nintendo if we do that, as well as just, you know, is, is the audience that we want to reach on Wii U uh, you know, I don't know if our game will play well with younger gamers. Now, Read Only Memories was backed on Kickstarter back in 2013. Almost 1,800 backers gave it about $64,000 with an estimated delivery date of November 2014. Here we are in October 2015. To what do you account the extra one year of development? Honestly, um, when we first started the game, you know, <laughs> just like with Gamer X Kickstarter, I had never made a game. I had never made a convention. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I kind of just was like looking at the land landscape. And same way with Gamer X, I just was really kind of frustrated that there hadn't really been any like 
games that had queer content in kind of a larger, you know, AAA indie style. And so I just kind of wanted to like, you know, kind of put it out there and just be like, here's a queer game. I want to show the industry that you can make a queer game and it can be successful and, you know, be well-funded and, and whatever. Um, but our, I think our initial goals for the game were very low in terms of like, it was going to be much more simple in terms of how the gameplay works, in terms of the, the engine. It would have just been very, very kind of early 90s style and, and not really deviate that much from it. But I think as we started working on it, you know, we started to realize, just like with GamerX, that uh, we can't just kind of, I don't even want to say half-ass it, but we, we can't just kind of make it a small project. There's so many people who have their eyes on it, who want to see this thing happen. They want it to be good. And when we were getting kind of to that end of the first year, which, again, we'd only been, unlike most Kickstarters, where they really have worked on the game for a long time for putting on Kickstarter, we didn't really have that much when we went to Kickstarter. And I think that's part of the reason why we, only, we, we really only barely hit our goal was we were showing people a very, very simple game, you know, kind of idea. And if you look back at what we showed and what we have now, it's, it's you know, almost, almost everything has been changed in some way. And so I think that, like, we really, when we started working on it and we realized that we wanted to make something bigger and better than what we had kind of originally promised, uh, and once I knew that the team was on board with that, it was, you know... Uh, as long as I knew that people weren't going to leave the project because we ran out of money, and we we, you know, we ran out of money very early on because that that sixty thousand doesn't really last for you know if you're going to go twice as long as your as your projected time. But everyone was in it, and they were down you know they were down to ride, and we just decided that we were not going to release something until we felt really good about it, and we felt like we had created something that was you know uh, worth kind of the the attention it's been getting and, and you know we didn't want to kind of come out and be like oh here's this game like my biggest fear was that people were going to look at it and be like oh that was pretty good for a gay game or like people would say it's a good game because it's a gay game and it has these like queer themes in it and I wanted people to like it because it's a good game that also happens to have queer themes and I think if we had released it on time it would have not been a very good game I think it would have been a good story and good visuals good music but I think that like we really underestimated how much time it would take to make the gameplay and like making it, you know, like thinking about all these different variables and depending on play styles, like how do you make it so that way, no matter who comes in and plays it, no matter what level of experience with games they have, no matter if they click on everything or only click on a few things, that they all can kind of walk away with a very similar experience and they all can kind of get the important information they need from each scene so that way further scenes make sense and yeah, I think we just kind of underestimated, like, you know, same with GameRx, we just underestimated how much work it would be, and, and then we kind of like, oh, okay, like, learning on the spot, trial by fire. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much why the game, you know, ended up getting delayed until, until just this, this month. I want to talk a lot more about the subversive content of the game, but first I want to lay down some foundation about some of its other elements, such as the noir setting. It's set in 2064, and there's definitely some futurism going on there. It reminds me in some respects of Blade Runner and the movie Her, especially in terms of artificial intelligence. So I'm wondering what inspired you to choose this particular setting for your game? So a couple a couple of reasons. Obviously, we drew a lot of inspiration from the game Snatcher, uh, Snatcher was like probably my my second or third favorite game ever, um, and growing up it was one of my favorites just because it was just so just amazing in terms of the story it told and, and how it told it, especially for a game that had come out in America in ninety three ninety four. Uh, it was just so ahead of its time, and I as as a kid I always wanted to see a sequel to it. I was like desperate for that sequel, and it wasn't until you know uh, obviously the, the 
Japan got police knots, but there, we haven't gotten an English patch until you know in the last couple of years. But it wasn't really until like Phoenix Wright and Danganronpa and like nine 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 that we've really gotten these like really really adult, really interesting, like really deep psychological adventure games. And I feel like between like early nineties and like late two thousands, there was almost nothing. And so for that time, I had always been being super desperate, and I, I actually built like flash games on new grounds that were like weird snap like I, I basically ripped music from snatcher and i just kind of made like weird snatcher sequels um and then you know i grew up and I, I stopped making flash games and stuff but i always wanted to make a game kind of in that style so that really influenced me also because it's a queer game and we wanted to feature queer characters i wanted to figure out a setting that would allow queer characters to kind of shine and be at the forefront without it being unrealistic and i think that even in san francisco like today, right now, you don't, there's never been like an openly gay mayor or an openly, you know, trans head of the police or whatever. And I don't think it's necessarily like an issue of like that, that, that couldn't be ha- possible right now. But I think if we were to kind of put all the characters that are in positions of power in our game that are queer and say that it happens right now, it'd be very kind of like, that's kind of a stretch like that. Like everything would have to align perfectly. And I think that, you know, 50 years from now, in the same way as, like, 50 years ago, no one would have imagined that we'd have personal color as president. Or, like, 100 years ago, no one would have imagined we'd have a Catholic as a president. Like, 50 years from now, hopefully, queer issues is not really, like, a thing. Like, it is, but it's it's one of those things where, like, people have kind of accepted it. It's part of normal society. And so we, we can feature those queer characters, and it doesn't feel like a stretch. It doesn't feel like we're, like, living in some sort of weird, unrealistic, you know, utopia. It seems like something that could, that could theoretically... As long as, you know, Russia doesn't, like, take over the world and, like, set us back, like, theoretically, human rights for queer people are going to get better in the next 50 years. Uh, So there's that. And then, you know, um, before working on GamerX and this game, uh, I worked at a tech startup. Uh, My roommate works at a tech startup. A lot of my friends are are techies, and, and they work around San Francisco. And I have access to a lot of information that is you know, classified uh, or whatever, NDA. But I'm aware of kind of a lot of the things that are happening in San Francisco in terms of like what's going to happen over the next 10, 15 years in terms of technology, um, assuming that nothing gets disrupted. And so I kind of wanted to just kind of apply a lot of my like thoughts and, you know, experiences with the inner workings of these like larger companies like Google and Apple and kind of like how they treat their employees, how they see the future looking, you know, what's important to them. And, and so you'll see with like Parallax and the different companies in the game, like we imagine this world and I, I don't think it's that hard to see like Google and Apple and like, you know, uh, Amazon and all these different companies basically becoming like these mega corporations that they, their power isn't necessarily in, in making money. It's in, they have control over all these different a- aspects of our lives and, if they become so intertwined, it's, it's a pot, like, you know, it's the same way as like people look at Twitter as being this like public resource when it's not, it's a private company and they control the platform, but, but people have just, they've just acclimated it so well into like their personal lives. So in our game, we kind of try to take that up to the 20th, you know, 20th exponential degree and just like, you know, uh, imagine kind of what this mega corporation society looks like and both the positives in terms of like, you know, I love Google and I love that Google's given us Gmail and Google search and Chrome and this and that. And, you know, and it's awesome. But at the same time, they also own all of our data. They know everything that we're doing. They can serve up super, super, you know, ultra personalized ads all the time. 
And I kind of wanted to kind of showcase that, like, you know, that, that, that things are not just dystopian and that like, oh, you know, we're all living as slaves, 1984. At the same time, it's also not perfect either. Like we have all these cool things, but you know, we, we all just kind of accept that that's the, that, that big brother watching us forever is the trade-off for all these cool things that we're getting for free. So why choose to present this game as a first-person point-and-click adventure game? I mean, there are lots of different genres you could go through. You specifically mentioned Gabriel Knight in your press release, and that is not a first-person game. There are a lot of different ways you could have presented this narrative. Why choose this particular gameplay style? Um, I think a lot of it actually kind of comes down to politics. You know, I think that you know, with our game and with kind of GamerX, we have a kind of a, a, of a mission statement that we're kind of trying to really, you know, put out there in terms of we want to create, you know, awesome queer games and awesome content for queer gamers. And with this being our very first game, there's a lot of eyes on us in terms of like, what are we going to do? Uh, and I think that if we had chosen, you know, like a straight male or a gay white male protagonist, I think we would have gotten a lot of heat from a lot of people, you know, justifiably so for just continuing down those tropes. But I think at the same time, if we had just made a game that was like, well, we're going to have a, you know, just pick, you know, random, random things out of a hat and kind of create like a really diverse character that could also backfire in terms of like, I want our game to be subversive. And if our game is like specifically like, like in Sunset where you're like, you're playing as a person of color in like another country and you're like a house cleaner, I could see how a lot of like traditional gamers would be like, that game's not made for me. Like that's like an art piece. And so I wanted to make something that is subversive. So I wanted to make something that, that anybody could approach, whether they be a straight white male or trans or, or come from the country, and they can kind of like come into it and be like, I can see myself in this game. Um, so by, by putting it in a first-person view, it allows – it obviously takes away from the amount of customization we can put on the character. The character is this blank slate. You really only know like they're not doing so hot right now. They're a journalist, and, and they know a few people in the town. And, other than that, the, the character has is nothing. It's it's kind of just you. It's it's it, you know that's our our whole point was just to kind of have you kind of fit yourself into it, um, and then Turing kind of acts as your your kind of spokesperson in a way. Um, I mean, it's limiting in that. Yeah, I, I think that it does make it so it's hard to kind of define that character, and that character really is ephemeral in a way, or it doesn't really exist. But uh, it allows us to you know do things like having gender neutral pronouns and kind of try it out and show people that it's not scary to put that in the game and you know you've had so many people on 4chan talk about the game and be like oh this game is really awesome and then uh i don't like the sjw stuff in the beginning but other than that it's fine and that's kind of what we, we want people who would, would would never try out games that have queer content in it to be able to kind of be like oh there's that thing i don't really like or i don't like it because i don't i don't really understand why i don't like it but i see it and then okay i guess that wasn't so bad I kind of want to show people like that you can implement these things in games that make everybody feel welcome and as a part of it without it being something that's going to turn other people off. Um, and so that was kind of the thought process behind it was we wanted people to be able to, you know, be able to come in from any, you know, walk of life and be able to implement themselves into the game and not have it feel like, you know, we're either playing it safe by going with, you know, like said, straight, straight white male character or purposely doing something just to be like get diversity points or whatever. It, it was really tough to kind of choose, you know, how that character would look without kind of falling into a trap of like excluding certain segments that we wanted to have see the game. And so I think that by doing this first person view, it allows a really basically like a window into San Francisco and um, Neo San Francisco. And I, I think that like 
if we see a sequel to the game or DLC, very likely it will not be first person. Now that we've established characters, now that people kind of know the world and the vibe that we're going for, I think that we can play it. Not that we necessarily played it safe, but we can choose to make scenes and things happen from points of view of different characters. Now that people, now that we've kind of gotten that first game out of the way, established the world, established canon, and you know, I think allowed people to kind of understand what we're doing. And and I think a lot of more conservative gamers were really scared when they knew that like GamerX was making this game and they were afraid it was going to be this giant like SJW as fuck like you know thing. And I think that a lot of them are playing and they're like, oh, okay, this isn't this isn't so bad. And that's kind of our hope is like we I never want to change our content just to be like to make people who don't respect queer people happy, like fuck them at on one level. But at the same time, like having that attitude is not going to make things better for anyone. It, it's good to kind of like slowly kind of show them that it, hey, like you can have these things in your games. It's not going to ruin anything for you, and you can actually make you can actually have a really great experience. Like. I think Undertale is a really good example of that, where there's a lot of queer content in it, but most gamers, like, if you want to have this awesome experience and enjoy the game, you just got to learn to, like, live with it, and if you can't live with it, then you're going to miss out on this really cool experience, and I think it's the same way with our game, where I hope that that people are telling their friends about it, and I hope that their friends are like, oh, I don't know, it's a gay game, it's made by GamerX, and the friends are like, no, you really should try it, it's actually not, like, that stuff isn't so bad, it's not so SJW as you think, because... You know, I don't want to just make games that like preach to the choir. I want I want to make things that's going to like cross the aisle a little bit and kind of show people that like, hey, it's not it's not so bad. I don't I don't know what you're being like fed that says that, like these feminists and gay people are going to come and like ruin your games and, and stuff because that is not the case. I mean, maybe maybe there's one person out there that is, but for the most part, I think everybody just wants to create a more equal awesome experience where everybody can enjoy games. One thing I've learned from hosting Polygamer is that it's inappropriate to expect marginalized voices to correct the status quo, correct the power dynamic imbalance, because they're not the ones who are responsible for creating it in the first place. This is not... They're they're not necessarily in a position to correct the problem that is affecting them. And yet here you are creating a game that does subvert the status quo. In a way, it would be ideal if somebody like Nintendo or Sony or Electronic Arts was creating games like Read Only Memories, but they're not. Instead, we have indie studios like Midboss making these games. Is it really your responsibility to be making these games? Isn't that putting a lot of pressure and responsibility on you? Uh, well, yeah, definitely to the responsibility and pressure. It, it's tough because, I mean, those marginalized voices are right. Like, it shouldn't be their responsibility. It isn't fair. And it's messed up that, that, you know, that, that that's kind of what society expects. Like, but at the same time, like, we can't, it's also not, I'm super pragmatic almost to like a fault. And I understand that like, just because it's not right and it's problematic and it's, it's, you know, uh, just really, you know, wrong that, 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 that marginalized voices have to you know, educate people and fix the problems that they didn't create. If that's what we have to do to move the needle, then that's what we have to do. You know, like, I don't think that like people who are like, well, that's not fair. Well, okay. Like that it's, it's not fair. Life's not fair. Like deal with it. And, and I know that that kind of like comes from like a place of privilege in a way. And if you're not in a position where you can effectively like educate people or, you know, be able to be that like you should, no one no one you should never be forced to do that like you should be able to do you know 
do you and, and be respected for who you are. But if you have like, like me, I have the, the resources and, and the position that I'm in that I can make the, like, I can try to fight for these changes and, you know, we can just all sit around and like beg Nintendo to do it. But until they're kind of forced to, they're not gonna, you know, like the same thing with Gamer X. Like I didn't want to make Gamer X cause I wanted to like do it. I, I actually kind of hate running Gamer. Like I love Gamer X, but I hate running it because there's a ton of work and there's no money in it, but it's great because it forces all these game companies to have to be like, how are we, you know, supporting our queer gamers? How are we wanting to address our queer gamers? And, you know, since launching, launching Gamer X, I'm seeing a lot more game studios actually begin kind of taking it a little bit more seriously. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks. Like, I, I wish that they would go out of their way and do it. And I wish that Gamer X and Midboss was never needed to be created because these companies were taken on their own to be like, oh man, like, we're doing a really bad job of showcasing the diversity in our characters and our, you know, our, our, our creators. But, um, you know, sometimes they need a little push and I'm just you know, super blessed that I'm in a position that I can help give that push. And yet when people take the opportunity that you have, they're not, not always necessarily rewarded. For example, people would say to Brianna Wu, you want video games with strong female protagonists? Go make your own. And so she did. And Revolution 60, when it went on Steam, got trashed, not by legitimate critics, but by trolls who were purposely giving her game low scores because they didn't want to see a game like that or a game by her succeed. And so how do you justify making a game when the people who most need to play it are also the ones most likely to trash it? I'm not really religious, but I subscribe almost to this whole idea of like, forgive them father for they don't know what they do. Like, I think that like most people, whether they be gamer gators or more conservative gamers or whatever, even if they don't like me or what I stand for, I think that they're, at the end of the day, good people. And I think that I want them to all be a part of like the same table of like, we're all enjoying this earth together and we all are going to die at some point together, you know, whatever. Like, we're all sharing our existence together. It sucks that we can't agree on certain things and it sucks that all these things have happened, but like, let's try to work together at least, you know, however we can to make this a better shared experience together. And, you know, uh, with gaming in color and with, with, with real memories, our whole point was to try to be like, how can we showcase the things that we want people to understand in a way that's not going to be threatening to them. That's not going to make them feel like they're being talked down to. That's not going to make them feel guilty with, you know, it, it, too much. Um, and it's tough. Like, I mean, I don't think that, you know, the way that Brianna or Anita or anyone else is doing it is wrong, but I can see how, you know, if they position things a certain way, it can be very hard. It's very easy for those people to kind of be like, okay, like you're insulting me or you're not listening to me. Therefore, I don't want to listen to anything you have to say. And I, I hate you. And I'm just going to like trash everything you ever do. And that sucks. And it's, I mean, like that happens to us a lot. Like we get a lot of people who just like troll us because of what, even before Gamergate, there was just random stuff because of who we are. And it stinks, especially when you're making a game, but it's also like that's kind of the territory that we we chose to like inhabit. You know, like we we chose that to make a, a, a convention around this LGBT theme, we chose to make a game that has these these you know topics we want to explore. And you know, like that just kind of comes with, with the territory. Uh it stinks and it's not fair, 
But again, it's, it's like, that is kind of what it is. And I think it's, it's a lot about it. A lot of it is like trying to make it work for you. You know, I think that although I don't think a lot of people who get the abuse that they do ask for it, I think the ones that can figure out how do I turn this abuse into helping showcase my point or, or help just raise the profile of these issues or even just help raise the profile of my game to, you know, because my game has these, these issues in it, uh, I think that those are the people who are like, you know, you got to kind of use that, that like when, when, uh, when the Westboro Baptist church came after us, like, although it stinks and it's, and it's like scary for some of our attendees and stuff, at the same time, it also helps raise the profile of the, of the, of the problem. And it helps, you know, create this talking point. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's tough. And, you know, I think that when you have someone like Rihanna, who's trying to make games that feature the things that she cares really deeply about and she gets kind of crapped on. Uh, by all these people, it's very frustrating, and and I think it actually really like speaks to her character that she doesn't just give up and be like, okay, I don't need to deal with this. I'm going to go do anything else and make more money and not have to deal with any of these people. And I think that no matter how you feel about the way that she or Nita or anyone is going about their business, I think they they actively want to make the gaming world a better place, and I think they actively are trying to do that through their work. So I mean, it sucks. I mean, it's like. But I, I think that when you're, if if they weren't getting the amount of vitriol and hate that they were, I also think that they probably wouldn't wouldn't have be they wouldn't be t- touching on on a nerve, you know. I think that if if it was just kind of silence, then the issue wouldn't really be as much of a issue. But I think that that the fact that they get all this just shows how much, you know, it really like underlines their point as opposed to kind of being like, okay, like thanks for thanks for for bringing that up. Like, what 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 else should we talk about? Like everyone, they're so angry, and it just helps everyone else. I think across across the board, be like, "Wow, this really is something we need to be talking about as a group." Like this is honestly an issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, it sucks that they have to deal with what what you know with the consequences of being on the front line. But good on them for being on that front line and you know doing whatever they can to try to kind of make the world a better place. And I think it says a lot about your character that you find it in your heart to forgive these individuals or at least to believe that they're still good people worth making games for because I have no direct evidence from Brianna or Anita. I haven't spoken with either one since Gamergate broke, but I would not blame them and I would not blame you for not believing in the best that humanity has to offer after all of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of family members that are like a little bit more conservative and stuff. And like, it can be really tough, like talking to people who don't respect kind of like your life choices or they, they feel like, you know, because you're this or that, that like, you're no longer, you know, deserving of God's love or, or that you're, you, you can, you're not a member of society or you're, you're this like deviant, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, there's so many things that, like, I'm sure that if me and you were to have a conversation just about the world and just kind of how things are, people 100 years from now might look back at us and look at us as a bunch of, like, racist, homophobic assholes, you know. And I think a lot of it comes down to, like, we just don't understand maybe some of the, like, the issues that haven't really been discussed yet. And even when I was a kid, I was terrible as a kid. I was just, like, the worst kind of, like, kid because I grew up in a 98% white community that was, like very, very, um, isolated because it was in the middle of Vermont. And so we just never had any like issues about race or any of these things ever come up ever. So whatever came out of the media, whatever was on CNN or Fox news or whatever, like you just kind of had to assume that's the way the world is. 
And it wasn't until I kind of traveled the world and saw things, I was like, oh, okay, like separating the truth from the fact. And I think for a lot of people who don't understand GamerX or why women are fighting right now for like their place in gaming, it's a lot of it comes from just like, if you haven't had to deal with it, if you haven't seen the issues, it's very easy to kind of live in this kind of like denial bubble of like, that's not really happening or, you know, like it's not as bad as you think or I don't like, it doesn't affect me. So why should I, you know, why, why, why is that a big deal? And it's, it's tough. Like teaching people empathy is really tough. And I think that it's, it's, it's extra tough because I feel like what people on the SJW side are saying and what people on the anti SJW side are saying, I don't feel like they're, they're even talking in the same language. We're like, anti-SJW people are very like, what are the facts? Like, I need to know the exact facts. And like, if this one person who I disagree with, like, embellish this one thing or whatever, then therefore nothing they say can be taken seriously at all. And like, they're all about like, like, let's get down, like, but down is very nitty gritty. And I feel like a lot of SJW people are very like, well, the nitty gritty doesn't matter. It's like, you have to understand, like, it's an empathy thing. Like, if people say they don't feel safe, you have to take them at their word and be like, okay, this person doesn't feel safe. And like, yeah, you can be vigilant about like, is someone trying to abuse this or whatever? And you should, like people, people should always, you know, question things. You can't just, just assume anybody, everything that everyone says is true. But when all these women, all these queer people are all like, hey, these things suck and we really want to make it work. You can't just assume that everybody is blanket lying and it's all like one giant scam to like put Zoe Quinn in power or whatever, whatever kind of crazy conspiracies they have. Like it's... It sucks because I, I don't think that the people on the anti-SJW side are, like, bad. I think that they are very just, like, hypervigilant about, like, we've created this really amazing thing with gaming and we can't let any outside forces, like, tinker with it at all And because if it does, it will all fall apart. And I think that that's coming from, honestly, like, a good place, but it's very, like, you know, you can't you can't just like keep a plant in the shade and just like let it just like sit there. Cause it will eventually you'll like, well, it has to continue to grow. You have to be able to trim the leaves and, and, you know, change, put new water on or whatever. And I, I feel like if we're not allowing new ideas into gaming, it's just going to like stagnate and, and will eventually die or get surpassed by something else. You know, I'm a, I'm like, I'm a gamer through and through. I understand why a lot of these like anti SJW or anti whatever, are very like, oh, we're real gamers. And these other people coming in are not real gamers because they haven't played as many games as me or this or that. And I understand why that feel they feel that way because they feel like this was their their art form that they helped kind of shape. And now these forces that were not speaking up before are speaking up and they feel like outsiders. And I think that what they don't, and I think it's, it's understandable why they would feel that way, but I think that they also don't realize that a lot of those voices have always been there they just not spoken up because they either felt it was inappropriate or it just what they didn't, it, you know, no one else was speaking up. So they didn't speak up. And I, I just feel like they're not understanding, like there's no empathy on one side where, you know, it may, maybe factually, like I, it, it's tough because it's very nuanced, but I just feel like a lot of these people who are kind of against integrating social and political things into games in any fashion, don't really understand kind of like the bigger picture. And if we really want gaming to be taken seriously as this art form that can do anything, can be anything, uh, we have to be able to explore everything no matter what and, and allow everything to, to, to be debatable and, 
good, you know, and, and be like an actual topic. And I, I don't, and I think that when you look at people like Anita, who are just like, you know, she even says at the beginning of her own videos that like, we, we can enjoy this content and it's, it, it's okay to enjoy it, even if it's problematic, you know, to, to paraphrase. And I think that a lot of people kind of lose that, that context where they just hear this woman who's like, these things are bad. And then, then they internalize that as I'm bad because this person's saying that I'm bad for enjoying these things, which is not true. I think it's perfectly fine to enjoy problematic content. I think it's great. Like that, it, the, the world is problematic. If, if that tells an interesting story, awesome. But it doesn't mean that we can't discuss it. And that's what's so like frustrating is like, I don't understand why these people are like, I can understand why people would be like, I don't like that she's saying these things because it makes me feel bad. That's, that, that's true. A lot. Of, I remember when I watched the first video, I was like, I feel bad because I enjoyed those things. And the more I've kind of gotten into these, you know, kind of the world that I'm in, the more I realize like there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. There's nothing wrong with expressing your enjoyment of it. And if other people are, are yucking on your yum, then poo on them. You all, it's not a personal attack. It's not like they're saying that you're a bad person. It's just we're having a discussion about ways that we can improve future media or just why those things are anti-feminist and doesn't, doesn't mean that they have to change, but it's just good to have that conversation. And I think that when people like, they just stick their heels down and they say, I don't want to have that conversation. Like you're just a liar. You're a scam artist. You're just, you know, part of this Illuminati group that's trying to ruin everything. It really is like, well, there's no, there's no reasonable debate we can have here. If you're not willing to just like talk about this on like a reasonable level, if you're just going to like immediately assume this is all lies and that there's all, it's all an ulterior motive, then like it sucks. But yeah, I mean, to, to kind of tie it all back, I, I do think that most people want to see gaming be good and awesome. I think that people just need to kind of see the bigger picture of like, if there are queer games, if there's women that are making games, that doesn't mean that that Capcom and all these other companies are going to go out of business or anything. It just means that there's more awesome, diverse content out there in the ocean. And, and I think that there's a lot of people who don't play games or play maybe not as many games as they do watch TV or music, whatever that it's not a, it's not a, Oh, well, if I'm playing revolution 60, I can't play metal gear solid or whatever. Like you can, you can have all of it if you want. I don't think there's any reason why we can't let more developers and more people into our fandom. And yeah, (laughs) sorry. I know that that kind of went all over the, but some of the motivation for the industry to remain stagnant, or at least to iterate as opposed to evolve or revolve, is because games have become so expensive that when you're investing millions of dollars in the next Metal Gear, you want to know that it will succeed. And if you have past evidence of a Metal Gear Solid game succeeding, then you want to repeat that success rather than try something daring or innovative. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's give these big publishers... Uh, some slack, and let's say that making social justice games or subversive games actually is harder than making a mainstream game. Um, would you say that there were any particular challenges to writing a diverse cast for read-only memories that you might not have encountered were you just featuring straight, white, cisgendered males? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say probably the biggest issue is just, you know, who we have on our team. You know, there was we have a whole bunch of diverse people in our game, and like, we don't have every one of those races and genders and, and all this stuff on our team. And so it makes it extra tough because if we're writing for another person that, that we can't directly kind of draw from, you know, that culture, it can be tough to write it in, a, in an appropriate way that isn't going to, you know, come off as like, oh, some white dude wrote it for some other thing, like, like usual. And so for us, it took just extra time of like, 
getting together a really great advisory board of people who we would just kind of show them scenes and be like, does this play out right? Is there anything in here that offends you? Is there anything in here that if you were in this position, assuming it was in the future and everything else was pretty much one-to-one, is it, would you react in this way? Is this okay? And for the most part, most people are like, yeah, it's great, whatever. And, you know, I, I think that for a lot of artists, that can be really scary because if someone says, I don't like this, this is offensive, they're like, well, this is my story. I don't want to change it. And that can become like a weird, like, you know, butting heads thing. But for us, you know, I, I think that we found people who understood the vision and kind of like the the plot and kind of what we're trying to get to and what parts of the game we were just inflexible with in terms of that is how it is. And if you don't feel uncomfortable with it, you probably don't want to advise on this game. But everything else, we're like, cool, like, let us know. Like, is it okay that this, you know, uh, this Muslim character is serving alcohol? You know, it, and if so, why would they get to that in their, in their life? Like, would that mean that they are no longer practicing or like, you know, just things like that, 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 that will probably never come up in the game. But it's like, by thinking about that, then when someone asks us, Oh, why did you make Majid a bartender? Like that's, you know, whatever, you know, then we can kind of say, Oh, well we did that because this, this, and this, we've actually talked to people and got advice about if it would even be appropriate da, 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 as opposed to just being like, ah, like we just did it. Cause we did it because yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the biggest things is just like talking to people and trying to kind of like alter things so that it fits their culture and, and make it not feel like it's being, you know, disingenuous. But I don't think that that's necessarily that like it wasn't that much work and it wasn't that much time and effort. I think that a lot of these AAA companies that say they're like, oh, we can't do it because of this or that. It's kind of like, well, one, they're getting called out by the time that the game is like already pretty much done. And I can understand why they would say, like, why they would come up with excuses. But they should be thinking about this during the design process of just, like, how are we going to get diverse voices involved at some point in terms of, like, looking through the story and, like, how it plays and just kind of giving their feedback. Because it's something that I think is is actually, like, relatively cheap and relatively, like, it's super, it was super helpful, even if you don't take all the advice. Yeah, it's, it's you know, to your point about kind of, like, the budgets, I, part of the reason why I... Obviously, I want our game to succeed for, for obvious reasons of, like, we made it and we want to make money and we want to, like, have a successful thing. But part of why I want Read-Only Memories and other queer games to be really successful is, like, you're, you're totally right. A, a big company that's making a game like Metal Gear Solid or Destiny and they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't want to put a queer character or a person of color or women or whatever into their game in certain roles because they, they, it's not been established as being a successful thing. And until that becomes like an established thing, they don't want to take a risk. And, you know, no matter who on their team is fighting for what, someone at the top is going to be like, we're just running the numbers. This is not a, we're not being sexist or whatever. Like this is the most pragmatic thing. And I get it. But by us being successful or other people being successful, then these other companies can look and be like, here's a case study of a game that, you know, had these things in it and was very successful and did it on this budget. So if we do it on this budget and we do it with these people and our resources, we should be able to make X month dollars or whatever. And and that's kind of our hope is that like by us and like Undertale and all these like queer games being successful, larger companies up will be like, why are we not doing this? Like it's been shut. Like all these indie games are like eating our lunch. We should be making these queer games too. And that's kind of our hope is that like, we can kind of set that, you know, kind of industry use case of queer games being successful. And then therefore larger companies are no longer afraid to 
dip their toes in and if they dip their toes in and it's good, then they'll, they'll dip in further. And that's why I think it's super important that we support, you know, queer games, like when, especially when they come out from bigger companies, because then it shows them like, Oh, okay. Like this game, you know, uh, when a game doesn't sell well, they start pointing fingers. When a game like prototype two doesn't sell well, they go, Oh, it's because there was a person of color as the lead character. We're not going to do that anymore. And that's like a real thing that happens. And so, you know, I would say just, just, I, I just, I, I really hope that, that if our game is successful, other companies can kind of look at it and be like, okay, like you can have queer characters in it and it does not hurt the, the, the potential sales of a game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but just as Gamer X was your first convention and Gaming in Color was your first documentary, Read Only Memories is your first game? Yes. What surprised you the most during its development period? What totally caught you off guard that you were not expecting? Um... The amount of QA that had to go into it was really shocking. I would say that, that a lot of the game got built out pretty quickly. But then it's like the more and more that we started building out all these different variables and allowing players to go down different paths, uh, it became very complicated and, and like this weird you know, mesh of different things. And especially with custom pronouns and all these different things where it affects like every sentence can be changed a little bit depending on, on choices. So having to run through every sentence and just being like, does this all fit on the page? Does it, is it timed out correctly? Does this even make sense in canon? Like, did the player do all these things to get this specific thing? So a lot of QA, and even, even at launch, I saw people playing it, and they would get something, and I'd, they would be slightly confused, like, I, didn't, I don't remember doing that. And I'd be like, mm, that's, the logic was not correct there. Um, and there was, there's just so much logic in our game, and when you start playing a game again and again every day, it's really hard. Like, you're just so close to it. Like, just this past week, me not playing the game and now coming back and starting to play it, I'm able to kind of come back with, like, a really good set, you know, fresh set of eyes and be able to just kind of, I, I see so many things I hate. And I'm just like, change, 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 change. I'd say that the amount of QA is really, is really hard. But also, because it's a game that... Um, is not it's a point and click adventure game and the, the gameplay is very limited in terms of like there's some puzzles and there are like mini games and stuff but for the most part like that isn't really the key gameplay it's really just like in the story and how you solve kind of the experience and, and kind of the experience you have because the game is so limited in the amount of gameplay it's really hard to show people and be like so what do you think about this because you know we would show it off at at indicator E3 and people would be like okay is there any gameplay to this? I'm like, well, it's a story. You gotta enjoy. And they're like, okay, bye. Because they have like two, three minutes to play a game and they want to like play it and feel the gameplay and see if they like it. And with us, there is no, there was very little gameplay to show them. We could show them a, a mini game that's not really relevant to, to that. And so we really had no idea until launch if people were even going to like it. You know, we knew that people liked the, the story. I'm, I'm sorry, we knew that people liked the, the graphics. We knew people liked the, the, the overall kind of idea of the story. And we knew people liked the music. But would it all come together into something that was interesting at all? Or would it just be like a random jumble of like mess and be like a really uninteresting, you know, thing? And we, it was really hard to get any validation because, you know, it's a story game. And so we can't just be like, okay, play this and then, you know, play for five minutes, let us know what you feel. And, then, you know, in a week, we'll show you a new build. We could show someone a week in a new build and, and everything they played would be exactly the same. It's just more and more, more, you know, logic. So 
it was really, really tough to kind of just know how people would enjoy it and what places they would get stuck and what they would enjoy and, and stuff like that. And now that we have it out on Steam and, and people have been playing it, we've been watching a lot of Let's Plays and just enjoying watching people solve puzzles and enjoying watching. Like for the first week, you know, we have about six endings in the game. And for the first week, week and a half, nobody got two of the endings at all. And we had, you know, hundreds of people that were even the other endings. And I had thought when we made it that it was going to be pretty close to like 25% for each one or, or whatever, you know, it's going to be split, split across pretty well. It's just kind of interesting because I had thought that people would come at it with different play styles and people do, but not in the way that they would get those specific endings. And so I'm seeing a lot of people be like, Oh, well, these are the endings or I got this and that doesn't seem right. And you know, that's probably been the hardest thing is just like, especially in a game where you have all these different endings and all these different like variables and they all kind of butterfly effect onto one another. Um, it's tough to kind of just know like what routes people are going to take because now that they start doing it, you know, we have all these like funny, weird things that we built in. And if nobody does it because they, they went down a different path and almost everybody goes down that path, then now we have to figure out how do we make it without like insulting our original fan base? How do we kind of start, letting people know there's the other content and how do we kind of create a slightly more equitable kind of, you know, playthrough So that way some people get this some people get that because I want there to be discussion. I want people to not all have like the same experience. So that's probably been the hardest part. And also just like making a game is hard. It seems so easy and it's really easy to like make something in like a hackathon. Like if you just want to like, throw stuff at the wall, you can create so much in a day or two, but creating it so there's no bugs, so there's no, like, major issues, like, cracking down on every small thing is, like, so time-consuming, and it's uh, it's tough to get to that from that, like, creating things is fun, brainstorming is fun, QAing and solving bugs for months is not fun. What would you have done differently? A lot of things changed as the game was going through. Like, if you again, if you watch our, our Kickstarter video, the just the, the the music and the layout of the game and the UI and the spacing of the characters, the menu system, everything looks different. And a lot of it changed in terms of not just like visually, but just kind of how it works in the game. And then every time we made like this large overhaul of like the systems, um, we had to go back from the very beginning and basically make sure that everything worked from the very beginning. And so there was a lot of like going, you know, getting halfway through the game and then changing something. And then we had to basically start from the beginning and make sure that everything from the beginning on, you know, played right. And so I think that we probably could have used a lot more like planning on that end in terms of like what what are the different variables we're going to put in? Like how are we going to let characters emote? How are we going to do sound emotions? Da, 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 da. As opposed to like playing it halfway through and being like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. Like what can we change here? Which is, I think it's really good that we were super adaptable and we were very, very flexible and we changed a lot. At the same time, it was very inefficient. And now that I have that experience, I think going into future projects, we can be a lot more like, here's the systems we're going to build out. We can all agree upon what, what we're going to do here and we can be flexible. If something really doesn't work, we can change it. But I think that we really went, we did a lot more like kind of just changing things as we go and a lot more kind of fast and loose than probably was appropriate for, especially for a first game, where if we didn't have people who were super G's and just were like, I want to see this thing get made. I love what we're doing here. Like, this is too important for not to get made. 
Like we would have, the team would have fallen apart like a year ago because we ran out of money and people would have been like, okay, see ya. But people who were working on it all believe so much in the project and what we're doing and, and the product was going to be awesome that, you know, we were able to work it out with everybody and everybody was excited to want to, you know, see it through to the end. We didn't have to release a product that we weren't proud of. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of them got super lucky. If, if I didn't have people who were like that, they would have, they would have been out of here a long time ago and, um, the game probably would not have gotten released or would have been, you know, better than the Kickstarter, but still kind of a mess. And I'm really glad we were able to release something that, you know, we're all proud of and everybody who plays it, like I haven't, we haven't gotten like a really negative review yet outside of people who just don't like gay things in games or they don't like point and clicks. So, you know, we're super happy with the, with the amount of polish and, and kind of just the amount of time we were able to get to kind of just, just keep on playing it with it. And, you know, if things didn't feel right, just continue sanding and sanding and sanding until, things were polished enough. And, and even now, like I, I look at it now and I, I kind of hate it because I see so many things I want to change and I'm, I'm changing them now for like future builds, but it's tough. You know, I you get it out there and then like there's certain scenes where you're like, I want the player to cry or I want the player to like feel this. And then they go through it and I'm watching people play it and they're like, eh, or it doesn't like, this doesn't register at all. And I'm like realizing, okay, like we didn't the sound maybe the sound effect wasn't right there. Maybe what, what Turing was saying should be like emphasized in some way. Um, and so watching people play it is like really, really eye-opening, and both makes me hate my work and love it because I like I need to change everything. I don't want anyone to see it anymore. I want to like pull it down for a week and just like you know change everything. But at the same time, I'm really just enjoying seeing people play it. And when when it, when when a, a thing works that we really wanted to work and it plays out the way that we expected it to play out, it's a very very like. Uh, uh, on it's it's a it's a high that no drug can match. You have the opportunity not only to release new builds and make changes to the existing read-only memories, but at the top of this podcast, you referred to it as the first chapter. So it sounds like you already have in mind to establish some workflows and create a second chapter. Yeah. So well, there's so right now there's kind of like a weird we're kind of arguing a lot in the chat right now about like what the next steps are because to me I want read-only memories to be very fluid. I want to take this first game and if things aren't working, I want to continue to change them. And even if that means changing characters and stuff, like I want things to just, just change as much as possible until it becomes the perfect kind of base for these other stories I want to tell. And I think a lot of people on the team are like, well, the game's out. People have played it. Like they've come to love certain things or hate it, but like they've had their experience. Let's, let's leave it alone and build off of that. But yeah, I mean, either way, like the whole goal with read only memories was to kind of create a base where, you know, I, I would say that there's not a ton of, of twists in this game. It's actually a lot of the stories presented pretty straightforward, but that's kind of intentional. I want this to be able to be a base where, you know, what you see is what you get with a lot of characters, and that will allow for much more interesting kind of twists and turns as their true kind of characters kind of get unveiled. Uh, unveiled. Um, you know, I think it was like it's, it was really tough writing these characters because we didn't want to fall into these tropes of like, oh, I want to make a villain. You know, the I don't want to make the villain queer coded just because that's scary to people and that's like problematic. At the same time, I don't want to just have all the queer people be like good guys with no flaws because that's like that's not very interesting and that's not realistic. And so, by kind of getting these characters kind of out there and presenting them in a way where they're all there and now they exist in the world and people kind of understand who they are and their canon 
I think that we can start doing some really interesting things with the characters now that they exist. And yeah, so we have some really interesting DLC stories that we want to do. We have a really interesting story for Read Only Memories 2 that we want to do. The most exciting thing is just like we spent so much time on building the uh, the engine for this game in terms of like allowing people like me who don't know how to code to be able to go in and script it out and be like, I can now just put in, like, I want this character's emotions to do this thing. I want them to play this sound effect this time, this music, you know, whatever. I can now do that with these, like, this, like, you know, semi-code system that we built out that was like, super hard to build out. So now making sequels or DLC, we can do in, like, a third of the time because we're no longer, like, having to build out the system and fix things and, like, test it out and go back and change everything again and again and again. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and you know, yeah, my, my goal with Read Only Memories was never for it to be, like, a one-and-done thing. I, I have really cool kind of ideas of what we want to do with it. Um, and not just in the point-and-click world. Like, it seems like a really nice base that we could build off a bunch of different cool things with it. And that's kind of our hope, is that we can do that if the game sells well enough that, you know, we can afford to do that. In the meantime, it sounds like there are some other games that are also pushing subversive agendas. You've mentioned a couple of times Undertale. Yeah, yeah. Well, Undertale is this game that really caught me and uh, a lot of people by surprise because it kind of came out of nowhere. I had a Kickstarter like two and a half years ago that raised like $50,000. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't exactly like setting the world on fire. But it looked really cool. I saw a trailer like a week before it came out. It looks like a mix of like Earthbound mixed with WarioWare. It just looked really interesting. Like I just was like, oh, this game looks like Earthbound. Oh, but the battle system is super unique. This looks really cool. And so that's kind of what got, got, got it on my radar. As the game came out, I bought it. I was like, oh, this is really nice. This is interesting. And I started playing it, and I was like, okay, well, you know, I played it a little bit. Uh, but everybody just was talking about it, talking, 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 talking. And eventually I kind of went back to it, and I, I really kind of went all in on it. And I could not believe the amount of quality in it. And it's a game that like is so good that it forces people who maybe would not play that kind of game or don't like the art or whatever like they you kind of have to play it because it's just so good and it's such like a once in a in a lifetime experience it's just like you know even if i didn't i mean i like the metal gear solid series but if i didn't i still tell people to play metal gear solid 3 because metal gear solid 3 is just this like perfect experience same with like super mario rpg you don't like rpgs super mario rpg is really good um, Earth uh, Undertale is is like that, where it's just it's just, it's really hard to explain. But even if you don't like that type of game, it's just works and it's fun. But it has so many like queer themes in it and so many queer thing like parts of it that are kind of key if you want to get the full experience. That kind of forces people who maybe would never play these kind of games, especially if they knew that there's queer content in them, they would just never play it because there's no that they would just turn them off. Um, and if you go to like the Steam like community page for Undertale, there's like someone who's complaining about the fact that like you can date a skeleton in the game, but it's like a, a male skeleton. And the person's like, "Well, I want I want to go on the date, but I don't want to do it if it's a male skeleton." And everyone's like, "Yeah, okay." But it's it's just kind of fascinating, like seeing you know people who are kind of people who would, you can tell would, are not exactly huge fans of the gays having to see gay or like there's like a, a poly character in it and like kind of being forced to, to interact with it is like really fascinating. And like, I can see like light bulbs being, being turned on. Um, same way with like, like if you look at like Steven universe, like people, sometimes people complain about, Oh, well Steven universe, 
universe? Like, oh, why does it have to be like the Steven Universe show? Like, why does Steven have to be the main character? You know, the, but him being the main character is actually what makes it work as a subversive piece of art. Because if it was a show about these like three ladies who kind of represent this like, you know, weird family structure that is not traditional and you know, they might be lesbians sort of like, I don't know, you know, like it, it kind of, if you, if you were to focus the show on them, at least initially, then the audience that you're trying to draw in and make it, make it be this subversive piece of art would never pay attention to it because they assume the show's not for them. By focusing on this like straight white boy, it allows people who maybe would never watch social justice stuff to come in and watch it and then kind of get their minds blown by like all this subversive stuff that, that Rebecca Sugar kind of puts in. Um, and kind of in the same way with like Undertale, with our game, we want something that's going to draw in people who maybe would never give us game, those types of games a chance. People who would be like, oh, gone home, it's just a lesbian walking simulator, brr. And they would never give it a chance because they're too not open-minded enough to that. Maybe they'll give this a chance because it's a wordy cyberpunk kind of, you know, uh, sci-fi conservative story, you know, or, or Undertale because it's a really cool kick-ass, uh, you know, uh, adventure game with really cool battle systems. And then they just kind of have to deal with the queer content and hopefully they'll walk out of it being, that wasn't so bad. Okay, that's not so bad. And and I, I think that's that's our hope with with our game and 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 I hope when they play games like Undertale and Life is Strange and Gone Home is that they can go into it either expecting a fun experience and they get a fun experience and they realize either during or after that there was queer stuff in it. And like, eh, that's fine because I think I feel like that's where like that moment of learning happens. Even as a kid, I remember there's so many things that like so many games I would play that this is kind of before things were you know labeled as social justice or not. That I would play games that like kind of spoke from, you know, uh, this is maybe not the best example, but like even just like playing Dysphoria by Anthropy, playing that, you know, I feel like I got a better idea of some of the struggles that trans people have much, much better than anything I learned at school or anything I learned from other people, who, even trans people who try to tell me things because I just couldn't wrap my head around some of the challenges. But like playing it and under and, like the challenges in the gameplay kind of directly correlate to a lot of the challenges they have in life, whether that be like having to wait around or frustration or this or that, things don't work. Uh, I thought that that was a way better way of conveying like things to this interactive medium than, than not. Uh, and so I, uh, I hope that when people who, who maybe are not like me, who, who don't run a gay gaming convention, who just live the, they can, their average ordinary lives, who want to play a fun game, they give these games a chance and hopefully um, they go into it not expecting to learn things and they learn things despite that. It's the kind of that old adage of like educational games don't work because they're not fun. And when people know they're going in to be like to learn, they don't want, like they, they, they will resist it and they'll be like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to retain anything that's happening here. But if they go in expecting a fun game and they happen to get educated as a result of the game, then they're a lot more willing to be like, okay, I accept that I, I took in knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're definitely trying to, at least our game, like hopefully catch catch flies with honey as opposed to vinegar. Awesome. Well, I'm, it sounds like the game is doing a good job. It's been well-received and it's getting good reviews. I've been certainly enjoying playing it. I come from the old school of growing up playing Shadowgate on the 8-bit Nintendo and I played the new rebooted reimagined Shadowgate on my YouTube channel and had a great time playing that as well. And I'm enjoying read-only memories. I find the SJW stuff to be... I'm I'm fair still fairly early into the game. I find it fairly subtle, uh, 
but that of course is the perspective of somebody who hosts the Polygamer podcast. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but I'm certainly enjoying it. I think it's a great virgin outing for your company. Oh, thank you. What, what, what chapter are you on? Admittedly still on the first. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, it gets, it gets, it gets more overt in certain areas. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah. We, we, I mean, again, kind of to all the points I was making before, like I didn't want to, especially with like the first chapter in the, in the prologue, like that's the stuff that everybody gets to play. Like that's the demo. That's going to be the free stuff on mobile. Uh, I don't want to scare people away yet. You know, like I want them to like to kind of be able to get hooked on the characters and stuff before kind of going a little too hard on some of the more gay stuff. Because you know, once they're in, then they're in, baby. Like if if I've always said that they should make a Call of Duty where you play through the entire game, you go, you're kick ass, fucking whatever, dude. You're killing people. You're you're going around the world, and at the very end of the game, if you've beaten it, then it's like they show a cutscene where you like come home to your husband or whatever. Because then by that point, it doesn't matter what you think. You already beat the game. You've already connected with the character. It's too late. We got you. Ah, oh, you tricked me. But, but yeah, I mean, and that sounds really bad, you know, like out of context uh, or even in context. But, you know, it's like Metroid. Like, would people have played Metroid if they knew, especially in the 80s, that it's a game about a girl going around killing things? Or is it more effective that by the fact that you're forced to play with it the entire time as a man until you've come into the realization that it was a woman the whole time. And it's like, oh, it blows your mind. I feel like it would be much, I feel like it was a much more effective vehicle for, for expressing that, that women can, can do anything that a man can do, if not better, by doing it subversively like that than just being like, here's this kick-ass woman and a starring role because that game maybe, maybe might not have been successful. Who knows? I mean, maybe it would have, but uh, the fact that they did it that way, I think, really helped people be like, oh, dang, like, where's my mind at? Why did I just assume it was a guy? Although, admittedly, Metroid did offer its male players the reward of seeing Samus wear fewer and fewer clothes, the better they did. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> small steps. <laughs> it's it's bizarre. I mean, like, again, like, I, I, I think that that's, that's a case of, like, it's good to be able to have those conversations. It's good to be able to, to, to not just say, oh, well, because Metroid did this one thing, it gets a free pass for everything else. But at the same time, it, it also doesn't diminish the love that we could ha- feel for it or the, you know, r- the respect that we have for, for breaking down those barriers. You know, I think that like, I would love, like, I don't, just because we made a game that's by Gamer X and that has queer characters in it, if people, whether they be straight or queer, if they find things they don't like or are problematic about our game, like, tell us, like, make a video. Like, I want, like, it doesn't mean that people can't enjoy it. It doesn't make our game bad or good. It just means that those are things that people can talk about and have those conversations. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, while Metroid did a lot of really amazing things, it, you know, by no means is it like the holy savior of games. Uh, and there definitely were, uh, obviously a lot of dudes who worked on it who wanted to see after working on that game for years and years, wanted to make their main heroine naked for some reason. And that's okay. We can still enjoy the game as long as we acknowledge that those things are, are a part of it. Are you saying that it's possible to analyze problematic media while still enjoying it? What? Mind blown. I know. It's so, you know, it's, blows my mind that people don't like whatever reason people they they just seem to erase that part of of her videos from like existence like she never said that when she says it every time where it's you can be i can like there's so many games i love that i know are super problematic 
I know there's so many games I play where like if you play the police knots English translation of it, like the main character is like calling things like faggy and stuff. And like I don't know if that's a direct translation or like that's an assumed translation. And like he goes around like just being super misogynistic. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the game. It doesn't mean you can't love the game and be like, wow, this was like amazing and world changing. But at the same time, wow, like that's really uh, backwards writing in that one specific area. And it's a shame that they couldn't have thought, you know, more progressively at that time. But it is what it is. It doesn't make it a bad, a bad piece of art. It's just good that we're, we're having these conversations. Like you said, it's baby steps. Baby steps. That's right. Awesome. Well, Matt, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Remind us where we can find you and your game online. Yeah. Well, if you want to follow me and talk about all this fun stuff, I'm at Matt Kahn on Twitter, M-A-T-T-C-O-N-N. Don't use Twitter. You can always email me, Matt, M-A-T-T, at midboss, M-I-D-B-O-S-S dot com. If you want to try out our game, you can go to Steam or GOG or itch.io and look for read-only memories. Um, the game is about 15 bucks right now, or you can wait for a Steam sale, whatever you want to do. Uh, if you do want to buy it, you can go on itch. Itch will give us more money, but and you'll, get, you'll still get a Steam code, but uh, whatever works for you. Um, and we're on Twitter at ROM2064. And if you're coming to GamerX this December, the 11th to 13th, you can see Mr. Gagne, Mr. Ken, uh, on a panel about unheard voices with Sean Alexander and some other really cool people. Awesome. I'm so looking forward to playing more of your game, to going to your event, to moderating that panel, and finally to meeting you. I know. It's going to be super fun. I think that uh, I think you're going to have a great time. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Me too, sir. I will see you soon. Yay! This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. All right, so you have been a very busy person going to Geek Girl Con and GQ. Is it GQ? QG? QG. QG Con. All right, so not Gentleman's Quarterly.